Welcome. Welcome, listeners. Thank you for choosing to join me for, oh my word, the fifth edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. This is the unsurpassed podcast of the behavior therapy community, and I am your host, DJ Moran. My plan is to present material about cognitive behavior therapy and clinical behavior analysis. But before I go any further, I must present the informed consent disclaimer. Material presented and opinions expressed on this website and in these podcasts here on are simply those of the individual participants that do not represent the profession of psychology or represent expert advice. They do not speak for acceptance and commitment therapy or any other therapy in general. These materials are for entertainment purposes, for professionals interested in modern cognitive behavior therapy and behavioral analysis. This information is no substitute for reading primary sources and gaining supervised therapy experience from a professional. Listen at your own risk. Thank you, Steve Baker. In today's podcast, I'll talk briefly to Nicholas Tornicky, who published a book entitled The ABCs of Human Behavior. It's an excellent book out now on New Harbinger, and I highly recommend it. And then I'll relay a little story about a boy who learned a lot about life and courage from his baseball coach. But before I get into those segments, I'd like to talk a little bit about the philosophy of functional contextualism. Functional contextualism is a root philosophy for much of ACT and RFT work. And while reading the ACT and RFT literature, you might come across people who talk about truth and the truth criterion. So I'll spend a little time reviewing the basics of the functional contextual perspective on truth. Almost three years ago, the listserv had a discussion about what the term truth means, and we discussed the perspective that functional contextualism has on that term. Very simply, to understand the functional contextualism version of truth, let's just take a new look at the word truth. It might be helpful to keep in mind that the word has a few usages. Truth has different connotations. At first, this might seem difficult to accept, and I know it was for a while for me, when I was first studying functional contextualism. Accepting a new definition of the word truth um, felt slippery at first. In many ways, truth is revered in some pockets of Western culture. Messing around with it is like saying, it all depends on what your definition of the word is, is. But the way functional contextualism is using the word, so to speak, isn't really synonymous to the usages found in phrases like, Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or other connotations of lying versus truth-telling. Currently, it appears that Western civilization's main usage of the word truth suggests how our knowledge corresponds with the reality, or at least how our verbal report corresponds with an objective or empirically validated event. When a mother and father watch their child steal cookies from a cookie jar, and then ask him if he took them without permission, and the kid answers no while Oreo crumbs fly out of his mouth, then he was not telling the truth. Truth in many usages, and probably the most popular one, is a correspondence between what a person says and what a person did or what they witnessed. That is an important connotation for many reasons. Our social community would not thrive in an environment where our arbitrarily applicable relational responding was arbitrarily applied. That is to say, in regular terms, saying stuff to other people that doesn't really correspond to actual events can lead to poor outcomes for everybody. 
For example, when my son grows up, I'm not going to teach my son to lie to his girlfriend to get her in bed. I'm not going to teach my daughter to lie to get her agenda through when she is the president. So we've briefly examined how truth is not used in functional contextualism's connotation. Before we get to what it is, maybe it might be a good idea to perhaps diffuse from the word. I'm only asking you to do this if you want to. It's only a consideration. You don't have to diffuse from it if you don't want to. But if you want to, I invite you to join me. Truth, 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 truth. Now, if you're willing to consider an alternate meaning of the word truth, and I feel like Morpheus from the movie The Matrix as I say this, consider that functional contextualism is a holistic worldview. And it looks to analyze the act in context. We're talking about environment behavior relations in our science. Behavior analysts don't just look at the act that someone does. They don't just look at the act of headbanging by a child with a developmental disability. They do a functional analysis to see what are the contextual variables that influence this behavior. Act therapists don't just look at the acts of frequent hand washing of a person with an obsessive compulsive repertoire. They include the antecedent and consequential events into the analysis. All three of those things are our unit of analysis. Now, functional contextualism assumes that the universe is one. There's no parts, just one. By assumption, that is where contextualism begins. Then, verbal creatures like you and I and everybody else who swims in this stream of verbal behavior, we create the parts. The behavior analyst in those examples that I just talked about is working in a holistic universe and then identifying the parts of that universe. They're not fundamental parts of the universe. They're just parts of the analysis, the antecedent, the behavior, the consequence. But they're still a unitary whole. Contextualists view the world as whole and then also analyze parts so that certain goals can be met. We analyze the parts so that certain goals can be met. When the analysis leads to an effective action on the part of the scientist or on the part of the people interested in the analysis, when that analysis leads to effective action, then in that functional contextualistic sense, the analysis is true. An analysis is true when the analysis accomplishes a certain objective. The analysis is true when it leads to successful working. It's not trying to correspond to a model to find truth in the analysis. It's trying to get the job done. Again, the point here is not that the truth in a functional contextualism sense is trying to correspond with a certain model. It's trying to get a certain job done. It's defined by successful working. So you might ask, is the term truth as used by a functional contextualism, the opposite of a lie. And I'd have to say, okay, when one's verbal behavior doesn't correspond to events, we'll call that a lie. Most of the time, saying the word lie is occasioned by when one's verbal behavior doesn't correspond to events. And if one's verbal behavior doesn't correspond to events, 
and even if the lying works for the liar, it is still by definition a lie. Just because lying works sometimes and might lead to successful working, like lying to get someone into bed or lying to get an agenda through in politics, just because it might work sometimes doesn't mean it's not lying. Hopefully, if I stated my case clearly, one can see that talking about truth versus lie and the contextualism word truth is like talking apples and oranges, a formal, mechanistic, correspondence-based truth is not the same as contextualism's truth. Just like the word bat is the name of something you hit baseballs with, it's also the name of a nocturnal flying mammal, and it's something a person does with his or her eyelashes when trying to be charming, bat is a word with different definitions. So is truth. I would strongly recommend reading Hayes, Hayes, and Reese, 1988, and Hayes and Hayes, 1992, to really immerse yourself in this. They're posted, these articles, on contextualpsychology.org, and the PDFs are available for download for free for ACBS members. If you have any further questions, feel free to email me about this. Or you could check out a book entitled ABCs of Human Behavior, Behavioral Principles for the Practicing Clinician. It's by Jonas Romnero and Nicholas Tornicky. This book is excellent for people who see clients on a regular basis but still want to learn the underpinnings and understand what happens with language, cognition, and human behavior. It's an excellent survey of operant conditioning, classical conditioning, and relational conditioning. And it's written in such an excellent way. It talks about vignettes, and it talks about walking people through therapy, and what goes on from a behavior analytic point of view. It's excellent, and I had an opportunity uh, to talk to Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you work? Yeah, I work in Sweden, southeast part of Sweden. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, present time, I work in private practice, uh, mainly uh, doing psychotherapy, but also tradi- more traditional kind of psychiatric work. What, um, what client uh, population do you typically work with? Um, different kinds of anxiety disorders, depression. I understand you have a uh, book coming out uh, on New Harbinger in 2008. Uh, can you tell us the title or the working title right now and what the book is about? Well, the working title is The, the ABCs of Behavior, an Introduction to Behavioral Psychotherapy. Yeah, and it's, well, it's basically what the title says. It's, a, it's an effort to try to sort of present the basic behavioral uh, perspective on psychotherapy using learning theory including sort of recent developments, right, relational frame theory, to conceptualize uh, human behavior and, and to connect that to clinical work and to see how sort of the same principles that, would, that we would use for understanding what people do uh, or the problems they have can be used for, for change strategies, basically. Who is the um, book targeted for? Who would be the targeted audience? Well, it, uh, both clinicians that are working, but also I would say, uh, you know, people doing different kinds of psychology courses at universities, uh, especially with, of course, with the clinical uh, sort of perspective. Even though you can use it, that's actually the way it's been used in Sweden, even on basic courses uh, at the university for people starting to study psychology, to sort of in a, an easy way to sort of be introduced to behavioral theories. Uh, what are the particular strengths of the book? 
I think the particular strength would be the connection between theoretical principles and that they are actually put to use in, in you know, everyday uh, clinical work. Now, the, the book is built on, on one hand, it presents you know, basic learning theory, uh, uh, operant conditioning, responding conditioning, relational framing. And then it's sort of, uh, even from the start, we use clinical vignettes or s different clinical vignettes that sort of follow us through the book. So we use the vignettes both to illustrate the theoretical things and, we, and then to illustrate, you know, uh, techniques for helping people to deal with their difficulties. As I mentioned, Nicholas's book is excellent. The behavioral study group on the ACT listserv plowed through it over the last few months here in the middle of, uh, um, middle of 2008, uh, over the summer. Uh, dozens and dozens of people read it together. Um, those discussions about each chapter are archived. Um, so if you aren't already part of the ACT listserv, see if you can get a, a hold of that book and a hold of those discussions. It was really enlightening. Good job to uh, Nicholas and his colleague. I'm going to close off with a story, um, and I hope that you find it um, as inspiring and uh, educational um, as I found it uh, to be with my experience with it. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. Ryan sits on the end of the bench in a little league dugout on a beautiful last day of May. He hears the coach who wants to win bellow out his name and say, You're on deck. Ryan walks past the other first and second graders who are equally oblivious to the score, the batting lineup, or the present condition of the game. There's one out and a man on first and another on second. Ryan puts on his brand new batting helmet which looks enormous and awkward on his tiny frame. The hard plastic hat looks more like a football helmet because of the wide plastic grill that covers the front of this helmet. He grabs his orange aluminum bat, and the coach who wants to win says, Go to the batter's circle and take a few swings. And by the time he gets to the circle, he hears the crack of a bat, some cheers, and then the ump call, Out at first. The runners advance to second and third. There are two outs. The third base coach smiles to Ryan. All right, little guy, get loose. And the coach who wants to win directs him to get up to the plate. Looking down at the brown dust of the baseball field, Ryan shuffles his cleats to the batter's box, dragging the bat behind him. He takes the type of batter's stance that you see among seven- and eight-year-olds. It's a cross between doing whatever it takes to feel comfortable and straining to take the awkward postures that have been dictated throughout spring training. He lifts the bat and tries not to rest it on his shoulders, bends his knees, and keeps his head and eyes fixed on the pitcher. It's a wonder he can see the pitcher through the face mask of this new baseball helmet he's wearing. Square your stance, yells the coach who wants to win. Ryan shuffles around the batter's box and finally settles into an equally unique stance, which is unsatisfactory to the shrugging coach who wants to win. Have fun, bud, calls the third base coach. The pitcher sails the first pitch inside, and it's too close for comfort for Ryan. He doesn't move. The ump calls ball one, and the catcher misses the pitch. 
The ball rolls far away, and the catcher goes to search for it. Ryan stands rigidly in the same contorted posture he had prior to the pitch. He doesn't leave the batter's box. He doesn't take a practice swing. He doesn't even look at the coaches saying, Good eye. The third base coach tells him, Get loose. Take some cuts, bud. No worries. But Ryan isn't moving, and it dawns on the coach that Ryan is standing too still. Ryan flashes back to last week's game under the lights. The first grader was playing baseball at 9 o'clock at night. Exhausted and distracted and in the fourth inning, he's at the plate wearing the team regulation baseball helmet, the one without the grill. He doesn't know the count, how many outs there are, or who is on base as he lifts the bat. The pitch to Ryan is aimed right down the pipe, but just like some pitches thrown by elementary school kids, the pitches don't always go where planned. Ryan tries to duck, but gets blasted in the face by the baseball, right in the kisser. Stars fill his closed eyes. He hears the smash against his lips and the ache in the jaw and in his teeth. The loud thud bounces through his skull. As he falls to the ground, he throws the bat down, which smashes into the catcher's open hand. The catcher yelps and cries. It's Little League chaos at home plate. And the ump yells, Coaches! The call is unnecessary as the third base coach and the opposing team coach run to aid the kids. Ryan is bleeding, crying, and freaking. He looks at the double image of the spotlights that illuminate the field. He hears the high-pitched whine of his brain recuperating from the shock. He is scooped up wholly by his coach, who runs back to the dugout. The coach, who wants to win, keeps Ryan's teammates away from him, saying, Give him some room. Give him some air. Ryan's mom is panting as she enters the dugout. Amid the ice packs and phrases such as, You're going to be all right. Shake it off and rub some dirt on it. Ryan recovers and takes to his feet. His mom asks, do you want to come home? He closes his eyes, and they squeeze out the tears. As they stream down his face, he nods and mouths an inaudible yes. Third base coach says, Go ahead, bud. I'll take care of your equipment. The coach who wants to win says, You'll be all right. As Ryan walks out of the dugout to the car, people clap. The third base coach hears his coaching partner say, It'll be a fat lip. With all this in mind, Ryan is again standing at home plate, but now he is frozen, tears coursing down his face right over that fat lip. He hears that high-pitched whine and nothing else. He sees the spotlights from the other night. He is not playing baseball. He's flashing back. The ump notices and calls the coach who wants to win over to home plate. Ryan has to be removed from the lineup. The coach who wants to win says, Come on, Ryan, don't be afraid. And then the coach who wants to win asks if Ryan can be substituted. The ump says no, and this will count as an out. Ryan likes playing outfield and is part of the team. So the coach who wants to win puts him in the lineup in the next game, and the game after that, and the game after that. But Ryan refuses to put on his helmet and get up to the plate to bat. Outright refuses. Even though he has a newfangled helmet, which no baseball could possibly penetrate. He refuses even though everyone says to him, Don't be afraid. 
What are you afraid of? You're not going to get hurt. Hey, look at this helmet. You're totally protected. Don't be afraid. Every time it's Ryan's turn to bat, the team takes an out. He refuses. The team starts losing. During baseball practice that week, the third base coach approaches Ryan. They talk about playing some ball and not about doing batting practice. They imagine that they're just going to have some fun. They'll play with wiffle balls, plastic balls, and tennis balls, just so there's no real risk of getting hurt. They'll just play. No mention is made about hitting home runs or how his stance looks. Ryan is encouraged for every swing he takes, hit or miss. Encouraged. He is encouraged by these small, committed actions. He does not know he's being exposed to his fears. Ryan's just playing baseball. After a half hour of fun, third base coach says, You know, it can be just like that during a game. I don't want to bat in a game. I'm afraid. So the coach says, I know. I'd be afraid too. You would? The little boy asks. If I got bean like you, I'd be afraid too. And you know what? What, coach? You can still bat while you're afraid. But everyone tells me not to be afraid, says the little boy. Well, I'm telling you that you can be afraid. Go up there and be afraid and play baseball at the same time. You like baseball, don't you, Ryan? Yes, coach, very much. Well, if you care about something, you just do it, even if you're afraid. Ryan looked at the coach strangely and walked away. The next Saturday morning, the ump yells, play ball! And Ryan's team was up first. It was the top of the first inning, and Ryan's team was already up one run. The bases were loaded, and there were two outs. The coach who wants to win calls Ryan to the batter's box. Ryan dons the giant helmet. The coach who wants to win yells to Ryan, Don't be afraid! And Ryan looks at the third base coach. And the third base coach gives Ryan a smiling thumbs up and says, It's okay to be afraid, bud. Let's just play some baseball. Ryan aimlessly finds his way to the batter's box takes a stance, and starts to hear that high-pitched whine in his brain. His belly turns, his heart races, and he starts to tear. The first pitch is sailed at him. He swings. Strike one. Third base coach yells, Nice cut, bud! His team claps. Another pitch is thrown. He swings. Strike two. The team cheers. Both coaches shout, good job, in unison. The third pitch is hurled. Ryan swings. Strike three, you're out. The crowd goes wild. Ryan runs smiling and crying to the third base coach. His dugout is cheering, and the coach who wants to win says something about next time. But Ryan is triumphant, victorious. He went down swinging.